Rude Awakenings, Chapter 2, read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott. Achan and Nick have set out by train from New Delhi, trying to reach Lumbini, the starting point for their walking pilgrimage round the Buddhist holy places of northern India. But trains beyond Lucknow have been cancelled because of rioting in Ayodhya, so they are travelling to Lucknow in the hope of somehow going further. Chapter 2 Over the Border Achan Suchito Sitting upright, emerging from the dark, to take in a cold and unfamiliar world. The lights of the carriage, which have been on all night to illuminate the nocturnal comings and goings of phantom fellow voyagers, grow dim as daylight blooms. Cries of tea, Chai Garang, Chai Garang, are echoing the desire in my mind. It's my birthday, 41 today, and I need to start suckling. However, as my lifestyle does not permit me using money, and furthermore, I have made a vow not to ask for anything, I have no way of procuring tea. Nick is awake, but gazing dully out of the window, oblivious to such needs. Rotten night, I was cold, with so much racket. He then swings back into his bunk and huddles under a blanket in a doze. Tea passes, stridently advertised. Giant pots and cups on a tray within a few tantalising feet of my desire spawn a few spluttering emotions, and then they cease. The carriage had filled up in the night, and the travellers were eager to enter the day. The man in the suit got his belly back in order and his bag out from beneath his seat. In the dim light there was a scramble of bodies as a final spasm in the carriage, accompanied by a clatter and scramble and flurry of bags, delivered us in look now. The damp grey morning was littered with people, a few in a rush, others randomly strewn around, barefooted, squatting on their heels with heads wrapped in cloth, staring. A few blanketed forms were still asleep on the platform. Seven in the morning is a threshold that must be crossed gently, especially on a raw and empty stomach with a thick head. But arrival meant galloping behind Nick, who was in organisational mode. Of course, every notice board said no train to Gorakhpur. Getting out was not going to be easy. Nick left me in the tea room at Lucknow Station while he foraged for biscuits. He returned having found the station master's office, Yes. He rings us a local train to Gorakhpur eleven something this evening. The whole city's under curfew because of the Odia riots. Another three trains from Delhi are running so as to prevent organised fundamentalists from pouring into the area. So what would you like to do, Bunty? There's nothing worth seeing or doing in luck now. Might as well stay here for the day. 
Interesting way with options, Nick. I straggled along behind Nick as he went through the ticket queue for the left luggage office and checked out the waiting rooms in the cafeteria. We, in turn, were subject to scrutiny by various stares. Nick is all red. Red hair and beard and red freckles. Indians think he has some kind of skin disease. Me, head newly shaven, bald and white as a baby and swathed in ochre-bound round robes. Thus the stare, whose chief function is to keep our curious presence at an objective distance. Its glassy quality emphasises that contact is not what is sought. In fact, if you speak to someone sustaining a stare, they become disconcerted as if you had somehow defiled a sacred ritual. The duty to keep the stair going was passed from person to person as we cantered up and down the platform, the staircase, this office and that notice board, arriving where we started with a few fragments of information. All this getting nowhere proved to be quite a business. It was soon eleven o'clock and time for a meal. In the cafeteria, we snared a waiter who moved around with such a highly developed stare that he managed to ignore everyone. The catching of eyes and the raising of a timorous index finger do not register as signals. Thank goodness for ears. The raised voice and imperious tone is the language of contact here. After 40 minutes of attention hunting, followed by negotiations, most of the items on the menu were unavailable. Our patience was rewarded with two white plates, each a centimetre thick, and containing a brown puddle, curried eggs. Happy birthday, Bunty! Then more waiting. Our white, or freckled, skin got us into the waiting room, first class, with its two rows of beds. The blend of the monotony of the overhead fans, a night of little sleep, the midday heat, and a stomach preoccupied with digesting curried eggs and bananas all helped to set consciousness sliding over the borders of time. British India was conjured up by the Edwardian writing above the door, the ponderous decor, the predominance of heavy wood on the door and window frames, and the discreet reservation of facilities for ladies, not women. Steam hissed and whistles blew. In this happy realm, the siege of Lucknow has ended, the Indian mutiny has been quelled, and a new imperial order has replaced the East India Company's backstage rule by proxy, bribery and personal connections. This new age ushered in grand buildings and even cities. The British influence still lingers. The weighty architecture, the infrastructure of the railways with their 1940s tea rooms and menus, even the form of English that is used have an Edwardian flavour. Being India, this sculpture will be preserved for millennia. The revamped Morris Oxford car that is the dominant model on the streets will probably be going strong through the 21st century. There will still be tiffin, lunch, and Will's cigarettes, and bread and butter with the crust cut off, when Britain has become Euro Division 7. It's familiar, but bizarre. Like reading those children's classics written before the First World War, where Agnes and Bertram have nannies, 
her father wears a suit to the evening meal. With these kind of perceptions, absurdly implanted in a raw and pungent Asian backdrop, it's difficult to feel real. In this strangeness, we instinctively made attempts to preserve our personal world, finding our corner of the waiting room and commenting on the scene, using words rather than stares as a way of keeping it outside ourselves. For Nick, the indeterminate state was brief. He lay down and was asleep in minutes. I dutifully sat on the bed to spend a little time in meditation. A young married Indian couple with two children reclined on top of the two beds opposite. She wearing a shiny green sari, occasionally stroking the children's hair or playing with them. The little boy and his sister, dressed in white, kept throwing shy, soft-eyed glances at me from behind their hands. In my pilgrim mode, I remembered one of the training rules. A bhikkhu should not lie down under the same roof as a woman, and I plumped for adherence to duty. Like some bhikkhus I have for months on end, some do for years, taken up the sitter's practice, an austerity wherein one refrains altogether from lying down. And so it was not difficult to drift between half awake and half asleep for a few hours sitting in lotus posture, propped against the wall, waiting for things to begin. I was living at Amrawadi Monastery in Hertfordshire when this voyage was conceived. My teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, who is the abbot, was himself in India that winter. So I was minding the shop and teaching the monks and nuns at Amrawadi during the two months of the winter. In the aloneness of meditation you can probe the clarified pool of the mind, feeling subtle currents touching into the stuff at the bottom of consciousness. Time and again as I touched into that, there was something like a weariness with home and human ease. Something set me to gazing into the bitter wind over the bleak hills and wondering, maybe I should just walk off into the snow, make it a pilgrimage, a a going forth, an act of faith, visit the holy places of Britain, wherever they are. A few weeks after his return at the end of February, Ajahn Sumedha stopped me briefly as I was passing by where he sits to receive visitors. Nick Scott was talking to me about going on a pilgrimage to the Buddhist holy places of India, said Ajahn Sumedha. He'd like to take a monk along. Assuming he was asking for some suggestions, my mind whirred to come up with some names of who would be suitable. So I was wondering whether you'd like to go. A further quarter of a second was taken up with weighing things up in my mind and formulating a reply. Uh, yes, uh, when do I go? Um, tomorrow? Not sure, you'd have to contact him. I think it's in a few months' time. Then someone else came by. I held that incident like a kid does his last bite of chocolate, just to savour the delight of the possibility, before a rude reality should dawn and tell me that the whole thing was a mistake and a miscommunication. Sister Jotaka, the monastery's perfect secretary, was more precise and practical. Yes, Bhante, Nick made the offer last year, and he'll be going later in the year. 
He'll be covering all the costs. So I reminded Ajahn Sumedha to choose someone. You'd better phone up Nick. I gave it a month, just to enjoy the fact that Ajahn Sumedha had chosen me, even though it had probably all fallen through. Then a tentative phone call. Um, Nick, I am... Um, um, Ajahn Sumedho said, and Nick, enjoying his part, played it as if he had hardly remembered. Oh, yes, I did say that. And gradually let his plan emerge until the fantasy descended into the conceptual womb. There it fattened for months, sucking in well wishes, suggestions, gifts of pilgrimage equipment, travellers' tales, books of Hindi grammar, maps from the time of British India, and grew plump with wonder. By August, our embryonic pilgrimage had developed a ponderous head and lively heart. Sitting under the apple trees in the monastery's orchard, Nick and I mused over plans and aspirations, information about climate and disease, and the sights of Ashokan columns mingled with our individual ideals. Nick's idea of a good walk is rambling hills, mountains, forests and glades where you can sit and enjoy the wonders of nature. Not a flat plain with paddy fields stretching as far as the eye can see. A giant farm, 500 miles wide, full of people working the land. It's not going to be easy. Ganges Plain is unpleasant, hot and flat and really boring, and people everywhere. But I was still starry-eyed. I'd heard glowing reports from monks in Thailand who'd walked around the middle country, meeting sadhus and receiving alms from villagers. And the idea of following the Buddha in faith was made even more attractive by the possibility that it might be difficult. What is a pilgrim's duty if it's not to endure? Yes, there was a fundamentalist glow in my heart. Every now and then the pain in my back or knees or the banging of my head against the wall or the clicking of my neck as the head fell forward would drag me back to look now. The body seems to revert to a fetus-like state when its instinct to sleep is checked. The head becomes too massive to balance on top of the crumpled body. Sometimes I come to with the top of my skull wedged against the wall so that my face pointed to the ceiling with a jaw dropped open. The fans droned on oblivious to such attention. The young Indian family continued their archetypal activities murmuring, feeding, grooming, and cuddling the children, and were at ease with mine. Mother India's benevolent aspect allows many kinds of religious observance or dharma. In fact, family life is dharma. However, you practice dharma for its own sake. Humans are God's cheer or curse, but the Great Mother looks on impassively. All good fundamentalists base their reality upon legend, and I am no different. My dharma as a Buddhist pilgrim is patient endurance, a quality much venerated in Buddhist legend. The stories say that immeasurable eons ago, in the time of Dipankara Buddha, then young nobleman Sumedha left home and took up the ascetic life. Moved by the demeanour of the Buddha of that age, he vowed to undertake birth after birth of spiritual endeavour, 
in order to develop the perfections that would result in becoming a Buddha in the future. And that meant not just the arduous business of liberation, but doing it utterly alone, with neither supportive company nor a suitable teaching. Furthermore, it meant developing the understanding and the compassion to show others the way. How else to ripen that vast empathy of a Buddha except through living life from every angle? And so, the great being went through the life experience hundreds of times. For one lifetime he was a hare, another time a monkey, on another occasion a minister, a farmer, a prince. Many were the occasions when the Buddha-to-be gave away his own life for the welfare of others, or practised forgiveness towards those who hacked his body apart. In birth after birth, he renounced wealth and possessions. Having abandoned his own life so many times that it meant nothing to him, in his penultimate birth as Prince Vesantara, he was presented with the test of giving up that which he held even more dear, the sight and company of his wife and children. This was the last test to give up the sweet taste of human warmth. When the great being passed the test and his family was subsequently restored to him, the gods rejoiced. The next birth was to be the last, and it took place where the Ganges plain terminates in forest and marshes a few miles south of the Himalayas, and it took place in history around the 5th century BCE, when Mahamaya, a queen of that region, dreamt that a white elephant entered her womb. Nine months later, she was making her way to her father's house, it being the custom to bear the first child under the parental roof when labour pains forced her to stop and give birth in a grove of sal trees. That's where Nick and I were headed. Lumbini. The waiting afternoon dozed under the fans. Lucknow was darkening by the time the stiffness and pain in my body finally held me awake and we got moving again. We made our way over to the queues for the ticket office, allowing four hours to get the tickets, retrieve the bags and find the train somewhere. Chaos as usual, but something unusual was going on. Rhythmic shouts beat through the random hubbub. In the main hall of the station, a throng of men were agitating, stirred by roars of, Jai Ram! Jai Ram! I could glimpse unkempt black hair wrapped in grubby headbands, red cloths thrown over shoulders, from the wildness of their eyes, you could tell it was something religious. Tamer folk moved around them. Nick and I kept a watchful distance, murmuring quietly about Ayodhya. Policing khaki with riot sticks stood by, measuring the tension. Fear waited, ready to burst out of the darkness like a tiger. Jai Ram! Jai Ram! The car Savaks were performing their dharma 
rallying to move on to Ayodhya to destroy the mosque defiling the holy birthplace of Lord Ram. Like the other great Hindu hero, Arjuna, Lord Ram's Dharma encompassed exile and renunciation, but is chiefly remembered as the duty of righteous war. Tough stuff, religious duty, and dangerous when interpreted outside of the context of the struggle of the spirit. What may represent fine points of conflict in the heart can get acted out in some horrendous forms on the manifest world. The gleaming eyes of Rama's righteous volunteers made one grateful for the gentler archetypes presented by the Buddha's Dharma. Renunciation is painful enough, but for the world in general, deluded renunciants are less dangerous than deluded heroes. As we moved through the crowds to the ticket office, we could see the mass of Lucknow dark as a thundercloud. Curfew. A few lights around the station were glowing to indicate a place of security. Around it, ever-hopeful stalls selling charms and sweets, ragged beggars, rickshaw drivers hovering, a few army jeeps, time ticking away, charged with passion and history. I don't remember how we got out. Journeys on second-class Indian rail blurred together in the mind, arms and legs thrust through all the windows and doors of the carriage as the train pulled up in the station. Bags are definitely a liability in the press for a seat, but don't put them down for a moment in this press. This is the ideal time for thieves to strike. One tide of passengers trying to leave swelled against the incoming torrent. It's a matter of holding your bag tight and pushing and squirming. No quarter is expected, but there are no hostile feelings whatsoever. This is just the way that one gets on a train. Our relative height and team strategy gave us an advantage on these trips. Nick would forge ahead through the maelstrom, sometimes scaling the carriage walls and swinging ape-like from one stanchion to the next along the carriage to our seat. I would wait on the platform, guarding the bags with dog-like fidelity. When a triumphant red head appeared at a window, I would pass the bags through and make my own way along, or actually just let go into the incoming tide. The local train to Gorakhpur, being the only one, was crowded, which by Indian standard means that not just the interior of the carriage, the aisles, the luggage racks and the lavatory were crammed with human bodies, but the exterior too. The roof bore a battalion of people, patiently squatting, knees under their chins, darker than the night sky. In the mesh of sound, the amalgam of thousands of human verses merged into a sea swell with hissing steam and the slamming doors. The guards' whistle shrieked, and Jai Ram hovered in the memory, waiting to swoop. Wasn't there something about Muslims or Hindus getting butchered on trains at the time of partition? I can see the headlines now. Religious fanatics riot on train. Buddhist monk bludgeoned to death. Sometimes the roof's the most comfortable place to be, said Nick. Of course, it's not allowed. But this is India. When a whole mass of people just get up there, there's nothing anybody can do. Last time I was in India going somewhere or another, the train was completely packed, so I got up there. 
Of course, the roof was packed too. The guard was really upset, trying to get me off the roof. You must come down, sir. This is not allowed. So I said, what about all these other people? Eventually, I wrote a little note saying I accepted complete responsibility for my foolish actions. Once I'd given him that, everything was all right. Of course, people do get killed from time to time. overhead power lines, low bridges. Getting out is never easy, even when you know where you want to go. Our standard seemed to be to get squeezed out in spasms, a night smothering the gloom and stench of stale urine, then Gorakhpur just after dawn. An hour or two in limbo looking for transport to the border, then a sudden scramble onto an old biscuit tin of a bus with Nick shoving a grease-sodden newspaper bag of vegetable mush and puris, small fried breads, into my hands. At the border there was more waiting. But a pilgrim's duty is to be patient, fanatically patient. And so one enters the waiting realm, a place around which irritation and the frustrated possibilities of action continually flicker, but do not burn. If you can willingly surrender yourself to that fire and go beyond hope, the gods salute you. Men in uniform, whose sole purpose seems to be to ask obtuse and pointless questions about the purpose of your visit, and have you hang around in fly-blown offices, filling in forms, or gradually metamorphose. The supreme dharma of patience melts official formalities, and glasses of sweet tea are produced, with smiles, intimate recollections and archaic courtesies, after hours, one has passed the test. The passport is stamped and returned. You can move on. Nick Scott There didn't seem to be much difference between Nepal and India at least when it came to the border town of Sonali. Both sides had a dusty street lined with shops, selling food and not doing much business. Both sides had the same slightly shifty-looking characters who tried to get you to change money, and on both I could see through gaps in the row of buildings to a flat land of rice paddies with no obvious border where the two countries met. The crossing consisted simply of two raised barriers, each with an empty sentry box and each with a queue of waiting Indian lorries. The immigration official on the Nepalese side at least looked Nepalese, a man from the mountains, shorter, squatter, with a slight Mongolian look and a friendly open face. Everyone else on the Nepalese side looked Indian and they passed unheeded back and forth across the border. It all made the actual border posts seem a bit surreal like a set for a Hollywood movie. I read a sign in the Nepalese office with some apprehension. It said that everyone with tourist visas must have proof on leaving of exchanging at least $10 for every day they'd been in the country. That wasn't much more than I imagined spending, but then there was Ajahn Suchito. He had no money, so I'd also have to exchange money for him, which we wouldn't then need. When the official turned up, I asked him about it. My companion is a Buddhist monk, 
and cannot handle money. So how can he exchange ten dollars into rupees for each day? He was not phased. This is not a problem. We will simply ignore this rule when you are returning. Visas were stamped in our passports. I paid the fee and we entered Nepal. Being with a Buddhist monk had some additional twists to travelling. The Buddha deliberately set things up so that monks would be dependent on lay people. As well as not handling money, they aren't allowed to grow food or store it until the next day, and they aren't allowed to eat things that haven't been offered to them. The Buddha was clearly delineating a dependence based on the tradition of wandering samanas, religious ascetics, which exists in India to this day. The lay people support the monk's spiritual life and the monks ennoble the lay people's material one. This relationship is one of the keys to why the Buddhist order of monks has survived two and a half thousand years. It has prevented the monastic communities from becoming cut off from and irrelevant to society. And dependence on the laity has acted as a check on the monastic's activities. If the laity do not approve, the monks will not get fed. It's a relationship I've grown to respect, for I've gained much from my association with monasteries and monks. They've provided teachings and a peaceful refuge to help me deal with my life, and it brings joy to my heart to be able to repay this. When their tradition began, life was much simpler. Monks just needed food and the occasional bit of cloth, But with our modern, complicated life, the things a Buddhist monk can't do for himself have multiplied. Travelling revealed this to me very clearly. It was like having a helpless child with me, except the child didn't mind being left on his own to look after the luggage for hours while I foraged. However, once we were wandering on foot across the middle country, he would return to the kind of life his rules were designed for. It should be like returning a duck to water. Buddhist monks have a lot of rules, hundreds of them, and Ajahn Suchito comes from a tradition that emphasises trying to keep them all. Many of the rules just define the best way to do things. The restraint they create makes it easier to live a spiritual life. There are also five moral precepts all Buddhists are encouraged to keep, to refrain from killing, from lying, from stealing, from intoxicants and from sexual behaviour that harms others. These I tried to keep. But for this trip, I'd undertaken instead to keep the eight precepts traditionally taken by lay Buddhists on pilgrimage. With these, the sexual precept is celibacy, as for the monks, and I'd be keeping three of the monks' training rules, not going to shows or entertainments, not using luxurious sleeping places, and not eating after midday. I couldn't imagine wanting to break any of them while travelling in India, except, that is, for that last one. Not eating after noon was a rule the Buddha introduced for his monks, partially out of compassion for lay people. He didn't want the monks going to collect food all times of the day. It also simplified the monks' daily life. It does feel pleasant to have evenings free from the business of eating, free for practising meditation. However, it also gave the final twist to my daily travel problems. Not only did I have to sort out train tickets and shop for both of our various needs, 
I also had to make sure we ate by midday and that we both got enough to last until the next day. From the border we decided to walk to Lombini. It was 28 kilometres away, 17 miles, and walking seemed the right way to arrive at our first holy site. It would also be a practice run for the 1,000 miles to come. Walking along the short road from the border to Baiwara, the nearest town, we began to notice some differences with Nepal. We passed large billboards advertising alcohol, the local singer beer and Johnny Walker whiskey. India had prohibitions on the sale of alcohol. These signs were for Indians coming over the border to buy it. The other noticeable thing was the western goods. There were also billboards for Marlborough cigarettes. We were passed by a couple of Japanese-made cars. And when we reached Baiwara, local youths were wearing American-style baseball caps and T-shirts emblazoned with the insignia of American universities. India had strict import laws. Nepal evidently did not. It was in Baiwara that I rid myself of the excess clothing bought in Delhi. Just walking the two miles from the border had underlined the foolishness of buying so much. The wise action would now have been to simply give the stuff away. But I couldn't bring myself to do it. Instead I sent them by post to Kathmandu, where we hoped to be at the end of the journey. It was colder there, and the extra clothes might be of use, and from there I could take them home to England. So Ajahn Suchito waited patiently, while I, at the post office's insistence, had the bag sewn up in cloth by a tailor, then sealed with wax, then stamped, and eventually accepted. It was a lot of bother, but the grasping mind was temporarily at peace. Back outside, the heat had gone out of the day, and it felt good to be walking. As we strode along, we left behind the discomfort of trying to make our way in India by public transport. We both felt good, and the squat, painted concrete posts every kilometre showing the distance to Lumbini went by steadily. Lumbini 26 kilometres, the first one read. We had to get to Lumbini in time for the meal next morning, so we'd have to walk on into the evening before sleeping out somewhere. Still, that didn't seem to be a problem, as the walking was so enjoyable. The road was lined with trees spaced every hundred yards or so, and between the trees on our right were the Himalayas. Beyond the foothills the distant peaks rose snow-covered and crystal clear after the recent monsoon so beautiful and startling that to begin with I had to keep glancing at them as if they might disappear. Flat paddy fields lay between us and the start of the foothills some twenty miles to the north, while to the south the plain stretched to the horizon. It was a good road with a new paved surface put there as part of the Nepalese government development of Lumbini to attract more visitors. They'd even renamed Baiwara a Siddhartha Nagar after the Buddha. It was on the reverse side of the kilometre posts. Not that anyone in the actual town was using the new name. There was little motorised traffic on the road. Beaten up buses with bars across the windows instead of glass 
would come by every hour or so, full with local people. An occasional small lorry would pass, with open back, also full of people. There were one or two cars, and one swish tourist bus, with tinted glass and air conditioning. That one bus was what this road was for. It was certainly not for the bullock carts. We passed a good dozen in groups of three or four, trundling the other way, pulled high with hay, with two bullocks pulling each, and a design that can't have changed much in a thousand years. The cart swayed as the bullocks ambled, and the wooden wheels, rimmed with bits of iron, rumbled on the road. The drivers, perched up on the straw, long stick in hand, would occasionally call to the bullocks, or switch the stick at them. Also on the road were locals, some on foot, but most peddling old-fashioned bicycles, on which they sat sedately upright. I took photos of the bullet carts against the mountain backdrop, of the flocks of bicycles, of Ajahn Suchito passing one of the kilometre signs, and just of the scenery. At last, the pilgrimage had begun. I first thought of the idea two years before. I had been on quite a few walks with Buddhist monks. As well as enjoying their company, I had also come to appreciate doing something other than for my own pleasure. The feeling of offering to others is beautiful in itself. It also neatly sidesteps that mind state usually encountered on holidays, where you are constantly checking whether you are enjoying yourself. This insight had combined with a desire I had to do something as a thank you and act of homage to the Buddha and his teachings, which had helped me so much. I didn't do anything about it initially, because I realised that while a walking pilgrimage around the Indian holy sites might be a great idea, the reality of trying to actually do it was likely to be far from pleasant. What finally compelled me to do something was the increasing mess I was making of my life at the time. I was responsible for a large and very ambitious site at the Gateshead Garden Festival, which was to run for six months over the summer before we left. Another great idea, this was based on the habitat creation work of my proper job, making a series of wetland nature reserves for birds on the Northumberland coast. I'd found the sponsorship, and my employers, a small charity, were keen. But it had to be created within 18 months, and I had to keep doing my old job at the same time. The site eventually proved a great success. We won many awards, including the best site, and I got to be on all manner of television programmes. However, there was an inverse relationship between my success and my personal happiness. The more praise I got, the more I became aware of the mess in my personal life. Trying to complete the site within a ludicrously tight time frame while doing my old job had meant little time for my assistant, who became totally fed up with me, no time for my friends and family, from whom I now felt cut off, and no wisdom in my love life. I was involved with two women who didn't want to share me when I didn't even have time for one. I reached a state of despair, and the idea of going away somewhere totally different started to appeal. That it would be difficult didn't matter anymore. I deserved a bit of hardship. From the first I had planned to invite a bhikkhu to come with me. But which one? I thought of inviting Ajahn Amaro or Ajahn Suchito, both of whom I had walked with before. But choosing my favourite bhikkhu didn't feel right. 
Instead, I should go to the abbot and let him decide. The trouble was, he might choose anyone. My mind sank at the thought of the various possibilities. I would be with this monk day in, day out for six months. When I did get up the courage to speak to him, Arjun Sumedho approved of the plan. And then when I asked him, with a hesitating heart, if he would like to choose who would go with me, he said, Hmm, yes. Then I can choose a monk who doesn't think of himself. Like Suchito or Amaro. The next I heard was very much later, when out of the blue Ajahn Suchito phoned and this hesitant voice explained that Ajahn Sumedho had said that Nick Scott had offered to take a bhikkhu on a six-month walking pilgrimage around the Indian holy sites. And would he like to go? He seemed the ideal monk for the journey. He was good at language and interested in learning Hindi. He knew the scriptures and could interpret what we would see. His integrity as a bhikkhu was impeccable and his application to meditation practice could be awesome. His ascetic personality would be a good counter to my tendency to always take the easy option, fudge rules and regulations, and indulge in sensual pleasures. It would be tough, but as I said, I felt I deserved it tough. And perhaps I would also be good for him. His disinterest in the material world could make him surprisingly incapable of dealing with it at times. I recalled several years before when he came to visit the small monastery near my home. He was taken by a layman to buy a pair of Wellingtons at the local farm store, but returned empty-handed. There had been too many pairs to choose from, and mindful of how upset people got when he just picked anything, he had opted for nothing. The abbot had to go back with him, and when I came round to visit, it was the much more practical Abba who showed us the pair they had got, pointing out how they would be just the thing. Ajahn Suchito looked on with a bemused and slightly dismissive air. We balanced each other. But the balancing would also mean we would be pulling in opposite directions. So it was good that we also already liked one another. Ajahn Suchito was now walking ahead of me, and the last kilometre post read Lumbini 18 kilometres. We still had a way to go, but the sun was setting and it was time to do the evening puja. We left the road and sat on the grass bank facing the fields, just out of sight of those passing on the road. He set up the little shrine, and there we placed the Buddha Rupas, or statues, we were each carrying. The incense was lit, we bowed three times, and began the evening chanting in praise of the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, while facing the paddy fields in the land of the Buddha. We sat in meditation for half an hour, sitting quietly with the sounds of people passing behind us, the trudge of feet, occasional conversation, and the tinkle of bicycle bells. We finished with a short chant and three bows, and then rose to continue walking. It was now dusk, and although the light was fading, we could still make out the distant peaks, the snow now a slight rosy pink from the setting sun. When we met before the trip to discuss how we would do it, I was full of where to go and how to get there. 
Ajahn Suchita was more concerned with the spirit of the thing. He suggested we keep up the daily pujas and meditation and the full moon vigils. I suggested we take lightweight sleeping bags, bivy bags and foam sleeping mats. He spoke of devotion and his wish to do it for others. I was concerned about water bottles, getting inoculations and maps. Stanford's, the big map shop in London, could supply maps for the high Himalayas, but not the plains of India. Although the government of India supposedly produced such maps, they were in fact unavailable. It was an early reminder of the frustration of trying to accomplish anything in India. Eventually I discovered the India office, a remnant of British rule. It had become an outpost of the British Library in Vauxhall, containing the accumulated records of the British Raj. I was told that the British offered them all back, but the new states of India and Pakistan were unable to agree on who was to hold them, so they are kept in London. They had wonderfully detailed maps of where we proposed to go, but they dated only up until independence, and they could only let me copy maps that predated 1940 because of copyright laws. The librarian did explain that I could, in theory, get permission from the Indian government, who owned the copyright, but he didn't hold out much hope of achieving this in less than a year. When we next met, while I had the maps, bivy bags and other practical things, Ajahn Suchito had a drawstring bag larger and heavier than a grapefruit, sewn for him by one of the nuns. In it was a Buddha Rupa, over 200 years old, given to him by a lay supporter for the journey, and things the members of the community had asked him to take round the Buddhist holy sites. There were medallions, bits of coloured thread, a small shell from the shrine of one of the nuns, lots of oddments, and the ashes of a recently deceased nun. He was going to wear this monster on a strap round his neck. I was flabbergasted. But Ajahn Suchito was pleased. He also had a much smaller bag with a small Buddha Rupa in it for me to wear. The last kilometre post had read Lumbini 12 kilometres and we were getting tired. It had been good walking in the evening. The light from the sun had been replaced by that of the moon which had risen behind us. The road had been quiet with just the occasional bicycle swishing by. Now it was time to stop and sleep. We found a spot just off the road that seemed suitable. It was hard to be certain in the moonlight. We unpacked and unrolled our bivy bags, a dull, muddy green chosen to keep us hidden, filled them with our sleeping bags and mats, and then sat in meditation to let the day drain from us. This did not take long in my case. As I slid into my sleeping bag, I could just make out Ajahn Suchito still sitting bolt upright in the shade of a tree some twenty yards away.